0: Listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief. Because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Footprints on Our Hearts. It feels like it's been a week of days this week. So last Sunday was International Bereaved Mother's Day, Tuesday was International Day of the Midwife, and Wednesday was World Maternal Mental Health Day. I sometimes feel like I need a diary that has all these events and celebrations marked in them just to remember them all. So if anyone designs that, let me know. (laughs) Depending on our individual experiences, these occasions can sometimes trigger unexpected feelings of grief, loss, perhaps anger, particularly if we weren't aware they were coming up. I know from my perspective, a lot of the time they just pop up in my Instagram feed or my Facebook feed um, without me realising that they were even a thing, that it even existed. But I think this is kind of symbolic of life after loss, Grief pops up unexpectedly all the time. And I think at some point you have to accept that you can't control when grief hits or what might trigger it. And this ties into a conversation that I had with a friend this week about how grief is often seen as a negative thing by other people and even sometimes by ourselves. And I think that's largely because it makes other people upset or uncomfortable to see us grieve. Understandably, they want us to be happy as a society we don't really talk about death we don't talk about grief it's it's one of those things that happens behind closed doors at home rather than publicly but I'm coming to the realization that grief isn't necessarily a bad thing at all after Sky died a friend of mine who suffered more than her fair share of loss told me that there is no grief without love And it's because we love our children that we feel grief, anger, and all those other uncomfortable emotions. The more we love, the more we grieve. So for me, thinking about grief as a manifestation of love is really helpful. It makes me feel better about feeling sad or taking time out to sit with my feelings and emotions rather than pushing them down or trying to hide them. I'm still not that comfortable with talking about Um, grief and death and expressing that in public, but I no longer feel like it's something that I have to hide. After all, we wouldn't hide the fact that we love someone, so why hide the fact that we grieve them? My guest on this week's podcast is much more confident speaking out about her son and making sure he's remembered. Henry was George's first child and he died unexpectedly just a few hours after birth. In this episode, we talk about memory making, Going through a coroner's inquiry and inquest, and we also touch on how Georgia's loss affected her pregnancy and early months with her daughter Merin, as well as the difficulties of balancing parenting a living child and a dead child. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Georgia, author of the blog, Hey World, It's Henry. Welcome to the podcast, Georgia. And could you start by giving us a bit of an introduction to you and your family? Yeah. Hi, Alison.
1: Um, yeah, sure. So my um, I'm Georgia and I'm married to my husband, Martin, and we have two children. Um, our eldest, Henry, would be two and a half and our youngest is 15 months old. And today, I think we're going to be talking about Henry mostly, who... Uh, died quite shortly after birth.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think Henry was your first child. How was your experience of trying to conceive in your pregnancy with him?
1: Yeah, so yeah, Henry was our first. Um, We, um, trying to conceive, we had absolutely no problems. We decided, finally decided to start trying for a family at the end of 2016, Um, we'd been talking about it for quite a while but we really weren't sure whether we wanted to or not we kept going back and forth on it um and it's one of those things where I think had we decided not to have children we would have been perfectly happy with that choice um but in the end we figured actually we might regret not having children more than we would regret having them if that makes sense so yeah at the end of 2016 we started trying and I fell pregnant um towards the start of 2017 it was the beginning of March that I found out and so no issues there Um, very soon into Henry's pregnancy I started being quite sick and that continued throughout his pregnancy and I wasn't diagnosed with hyperemesis but I I now know I had hyperemesis because it just wasn't normal but um, Mm -hmm. yeah other than that though his pregnancy was absolutely fine we um, later on when we were going through everything that happened, uh, a doctor commented that it was an unremarkable pregnancy, which is actually what you want during pregnancy. You want it to be unremarkable. So uh, yeah. Yeah, A
0: nice, easy, boring pregnancy. Yeah, basically, yeah.
1: (laughs) So We didn't really have any issues. We had a little bleed at six weeks and we got to see him on a a scan. So that was nice and he was fine.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But other than that, yeah, and the high hyperemesis, we had no issues whatsoever.
0: Okay, so you just basically went through the normal dating scan 20week scan all your preparation up getting ready did you did you find out that you were expecting a boy or did you leave uh, that to no be a we didn't
1: no that was going to be a surprise when he was born but the sonographer did give it away a little bit um oh, his I think it must have been his 20-week scan because we only had the two. But, um, yeah, she at one point towards the end, she said, "Okay, well, he looks fine. And my husband didn't pick up on it, but I did. So I had an inkling from then on he was probably a boy, um, but I didn't say anything to anyone. And then, yeah, he was a boy. So, yeah, I think she did give it away (laughs) a little bit there.
0: (laughs) So um, let's go on to talk about his birth. Did you go into labour naturally? How was was your experience with that?
1: Um, Yeah, so his birth was um it was quite quick and he was born at 38 weeks and everybody had told me that first babies tend to be born at 41 weeks like literally everyone like midwives books um just people I know you know first babies come up 41 then they're always late so um at 30 it was at, the day before 38 weeks I felt really really uncomfortable um I had quite a lot of backache and um We were meant to be going for dinner with some friends and I just had to cancel and get in the bath and just to ease that backache. But I didn't think it was labour at all. Um, That night I was so uncomfortable. I had to get out of bed and I did my hypnobirthing techniques. But again, I didn't think I was in labour. I don't know what I thought was happening, but I was just like, no, no, this isn't labour. And Martin went to work the following day. And he said, and I said to him, like, keep your phone on just in case. So some part of me must have realized what was happening, even if I wasn't sort of consciously acknowledging it. And then uh, I started just cleaning stuff, you know, sort of really nesting. I hadn't packed a hospital bag at this point because I wasn't expecting him for another three weeks. And uh, I hadn't cleaned (laughs) any of his, like, blankets or anything. So I, I put all those through the washing machine. And I was walking back upstairs with those to hang them out to dry when my waters broke. So I mess. this was about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. I messaged Martin and, and said, oh, so my waters have broke, but first labors tend to take quite a while, I've heard. So don't worry about coming home from work. Um, he was meant to be going climbing after work. And I said, if you could just come straight home from work, though, at five o'clock and don't go climbing, you know, just in case. And then everything just started to you know, really sort of ramp up then. Like um, I now know I was properly contracting. They were quite like regular and um, I messaged him that maybe you should get back actually. So he um, at lunchtime he came home from work, and then I don't know why I did this. I sent him to the shops because again I was just still in denial about what was actually happening, and I said, you know, this could take a long while. Go and get some snacks for us from the shop, and the hospital won't want well, us going in if I'm not you know fully established. And you know we'll get ready, we'll pack our bag, and then we'll go in. And um, by the time he got back from the shop, he was like, you know, we need to go um, to the hospital. Like clearly you're <laughs> not timing the contractions. And he was like, yeah, I think we really need to go. So he phoned up the maternity assessment centre, but he actually phoned the wrong assessment centre um, because we live in Leeds. But we were planning to give birth at Bradford and um, I noticed on his phone I was like they're not the right people so then he was like oh sorry I'm from the wrong hospital so he then rang the right hospital and they said okay um let's talk to her on the phone so they spoke to me and because I could still hold a conversation they were they said um you're probably not in labor uh, you know you're probably not far enough along to come in yet and I was like okay this it does feel like it but okay so we um they said you know ring back in a few hours if it feels like it's getting any you know stronger um and then I think it was about half an hour later I really you know, started feeling the need to like to push um well I didn't feel the need to push I, I felt like I had to go you know, for a poo um and Martin was there and uh, I was like I really need to go for a poo and he was like oh do you want me to leave and I was like no you're not leaving so <laughs> so yeah I mean when you're giving birth like you know you don't care who sees what really so um and at that point, we were like, no, we really do need to go now. So we phoned the hospital again and they said, OK, come on down to the maternity assessment centre. And um, we got in the car. And I remember before, um, you know, a few weeks previously, I've been reading a, a hypnobirthing book. And in that book, they said, you know, if, you, if you're unable to sit in the car, it's fine going on all fours on the back seat. And at the time, I just thought, well, I'm never doing that that's not safe is it you know I won't be strapped in and that's how I got to the hospital I I was on all fours on the back seat um driving through like sort of Bradford at school um kick out time so it took us 40 minutes to do what's normally a 20 minute drive and uh, we got to the hospital and we were still on our way to maternity assessment um and in at Bradford hospital where I gave birth you have to walk through like a cafe to get over to the maternity assessment and um I was having to stop to contract, and you know, I saw people's like your faces, like, "Oh my god, like, what's going on?" And we got intercepted by a midwife who was like, "You know, where are you going?" We said, "Oh, we're going to Mac," and she was like, "No, you're not. You're, you know, I'm taking you to the birth center." So uh, we went to the birth center. They obviously weren't expecting us, and um, they were actually closed to admissions that day because they um, either were too full or didn't have enough staffing. So then they wheeled me over to the labor ward um, and there wasn't actually room on labor ward for me at that time. So um, I just I remember like it was quite chaotic, like people calling out like it's room five free. And they're like, no, there's someone in room five. And then someone else, you know, we're just about to finish cleaning room three. And they're like, OK, we'll go in there then. And I got in and um, had a bit of gas in there and just Martin. It was said it was quite funny because in the car I'd been sort of swearing quite a lot I'm not usually a sweary person but you know it was, yeah it was very uncomfortable in that car a labor does that to you yeah it does yeah <laughs> I just didn't, didn't care anymore I was like you know ah um but apparently when I got to the hospital I retoned it down and instead of swearing I was going oh gosh oh oh golly this you no know, this hurts so um yeah he just said it, it was you know, very funny that just how even in that like zone of giving birth, I was really aware of the people around me and that I didn't want to spare in front of them. And then uh, Henry was born uh, about 40 minutes after we arrived at the hospital and his birth was really great. Like I just remember really, really being in the zone and giving birth isn't something I was unconfident about like I'd prepared myself as much as I could and it went so well and I remember at the end of giving after giving birth and when he was here thinking I could do that again like I could just easily do that again Um, and even though I'd really struggled with pregnancy and having hyperemesis and during pregnancy, would said, you know, he will probably be our only one because I, I can't do this again. Straight after birth, you know, you've got all those hormones going through you, and I was just like, well, this is incredible. You know, I, I could have ten babies. You know, if it's it, it only one this now <laughs> yeah. So, basically, yeah. Um, and and he was perfect. And you know, you know, they say every mother thinks their baby is the most beautiful, and he really was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. He was born. um he was born very quiet but alert very calm and i think in part that's because i was very calm during labor um mm-hmm. and he just looked around he had like big brown eyes and and he was just gorgeous so like, was beautiful and like I, it's very cliche but i honestly think that was like the happiest time of my life being in that room with him just after he was born and like looking back it's you know that's kind of the last point i wish things were you know really normal for us that's the time we had as a, a completely normal family with our child um mm-hmm. so yeah
0: yeah that i mean that sounds like apart from obviously the sickness everything went pretty much as well as it could have done and you made it to the hospital in time which doesn't always happen <laughs> no home <birth> here yeah <laughs> so can you talk us through what happened next then
1: yep yeah, sure so um As I say, Henry was fine. He was born with an Apgar of nine, and we were even told we could go home that same evening, you know, provided his newborn tests were fine. But we were expecting to be absolutely fine. Um, So we just had time with him. had a couple of hours with him. Um, I had some perineal tearing, so I had that stitched up. And I remember a point while that was happening where Martin was holding Henry in his arms. And just looking over at them and being like, oh, you know, that that's my world over there. Um, and I think Martin and I were just in the room with Henry by ourselves. We were just you know, holding him, passing between each other. And then I, I noticed that um, he just was very still. Um, he'd gone a bit floppy and his lips looked a bit blue. And there's just something, you know, we, you just know. I was like, there's just something not right here. So Martin went out into the hallway and got a, a midwife who came in and she looked at Henry and I remember, you know, you, when you just know something's not right, but you still, you just ask. And I said, is he okay? And the midwife said, no, he's not okay. And she rang the emergency, um, the bell that they have in the hospital. And then it was just uh, not chaos because it was organized, but that room there's a tiny delivery room just filled with people. Like it's, I, just looking back, I can't believe how many people were in that room. Um, so the midwife started life support on him, they started CPR. And then um, I, I don't really remember much of this, it is all a bit of a blur, but we went over it again after. Um, doctors came over from the neonatal intensive care unit and they started um, doing their thing, working on him. And we were in the room with him the whole time and they attempted to resuscitate him for 40 minutes. And during that time, the consultant doctor who was on call came and spoke to us and said, you know, we he, he's been without oxygen for quite a long time now. And I didn't realize at the time, but 20 minutes is how long usually a, a CPR attempt goes on for. Um, they tr- they tried for longer because he was a baby. They, they really did everything they could. Um, but he said, and he spoke quite frankly to us and said, we don't think, you know, we could put him onto a life support machine, but we just don't think there's any point or we don't think that's in his best interest we don't think he can survive this um so at that point we said okay yeah just um stop so that was it
0: i can't i'm sorry i get emotional here because i can't imagine how hard that must have been you one minute you have your perfect newborn healthy baby boy you have your whole world there and then a few minutes later that whole world comes crashing down around you and you're helpless you're just watching this happen and 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 you can't do anything about it you can't do anything to save him and I'm sure that it must have been really distressing for the staff as well I spoke to another lady who had um, her baby died during labor but death wasn't confirmed until after so they also were trying to resuscitate him and and she said that you know, they were extremely distressed because, you know, at the end of the day, they want they want to help you give birth to a life baby as well. Yeah.
1: No, I, I remember. So um there were no, there were a lot of people in that room. There was a lot of people around Henry, but there were people with us as well. Um, and I remember the midwife holding my hand. And this is what really clued me into that something, you know, that he probably wasn't going to be saved. It was her face. like I was mm-hmm. watching her face and she just looked so distraught. horrified. So, yeah, it's distraught. Yeah, that's the word. And I you know, looking at her, I was like, well, you know, this is her job. You know, she looks after babies uh, well, she looks after women. She you know, looks after the babies when they're born. And, you know, she must have been in a situation similar to this. And looking at her face, I could tell that this wasn't good, you know. And I remember thinking that, like, this is not good. Uh, and there was a moment during that resuscitation attempt when I thought, wow, this is the point at which our whole lives change. Nothing mm. is ever going to be the same after this.
0: And were you, I don't know, were you even able to take it in properly at that time? I mean, you must have been in so much shock in terms of what was happening.
1: Yeah. So I think, yeah, I was from the very start, I was very aware that this was it. He was dead. You know, He wasn't coming back. Um, But it did feel like it was I was watching somebody else. Uh, it, It almost felt like it was like a film like quality. And there I was. Like it was almost like I was outside my body, just watching what was going on from above. And that sounds really like silly, but looking back, that is how I sort of see it. I don't see my, I don't see it from a first-person perspective. It's like just watching the whole scene. Um, but yeah, if I, if I was able to take it in very quickly. I, I knew that that this is what was happening to me, to him.
0: Yeah. So after they've, you know, you've, I guess accepted that there is nothing else they can do you know he's I get he's still in the room with you he hasn't sort of been whisked off to neonatal or anything what happened next did they give you back to him did they move you through to bereavement suites or what happened after that because it must have been again slightly an an unusual situation because you know normally if you were going in for a stillbirth for example you would have gone straight to the bereavement suite or in our case we were on the labor ward and then got moved to the bereavement suite so how how did that happen
1: Okay, so yeah, um, the doctor came and spoke to us, um, the consultant, when you know, they stopped all um, like life support on him, and said, "I have to refer this to the coroner. It's a sudden and unexpected death in hospital. So legally, this is my duty." And and he went through what that meant. Um, it meant he had to take Henry away just briefly um because he had to get tissue samples from him he had to get um, a sample from his bladder just lots of different samples and they had to be as fresh as possible um and he told us exactly where henry was going he said it's just down down the corridor and how long they'd be um so they took henry away just very briefly and then he came back to us and everyone all, all the staff were incredible they said you know this the delivery room we in was tiny Um, so spend as much time as you need in this delivery room and we have another room if you want to go to that other room we can take you there and it's a parental suite it's the bereavement suite Um, so I think we had about an hour in that delivery room after Henry came back and then they moved us to the uh, the snow snowdrop suite at the hospital um, which is self-contained you know a little kitchen, bathroom and uh, pull out bed for the parents so, yeah, we went there with Henry um, because Henry's death was referred to the coroner. Um, so this was evening at this point because he was born at mm-hmm. five o'clock in the evening. um, they said he will have to go away for a postmortem as soon as possible. That'll be the following day. So we had that night with him. Um, our parents drove down. Uh, both Martin and my parents live in Suffolk. So it's about a four or five hour drive for them. Um, they arrived during the night and just sat with us overnight and the following day, a lot of our other family came down as well. Out, came up, and but Henry had to go away for his post mortem. So we had less than twenty four hours with him in the bereavement suite. And there's any, I think I might be wrong about this, but I think there's only sort of two um, child pathologists in the UK, and one of them's at Sheffield Hospital. So Henry went to yeah Henry went to Sheffield for his. Uh, post-mortem it was uh, one o'clock the following afternoon and I'd already delayed for as long as I could I'd said you know we've got family coming can they just meet him and my aunt arrived just to sort of say goodbye to him um but then I had to hand him over and th- he had to go away to Sheffield without us.
0: Gosh that must that must have been heartbreaking I didn't realize that he would have to go so mm-hmm. soon Yep and be taken away from you so soon yeah I mean Sky went for a post-mortem um but I think we had a bit more flexibility with that was that because they needed to look at him as soon as possible was that the the reason behind it yeah that's
1: why so um when once it handles the coroner coroners it's like a legal process um and you know we, we didn't he had to have a post-mortem legally that's what the hospital had to do for him Um, and yeah it's better that that's done as soon as possible so that tissue samples don't break down you know at this point we still had no idea what could have caused his death and they just needed everything to be as fresh as possible um, to get the best chance of finding some answers
0: and how what was your feeling at that time around sort of getting answers about his death and and because obviously this is a whole legal proceeding, which is happening whether or not you choose to. You have no choice in this matter, which is really hard because it kind of takes that control out of your hands. And I know that some parents, particularly those who've perhaps lost their children at, at full term or shortly after birth, they want them to stay perfect. They don't they don't almost not not that they don't want to know, but they don't need to know. What were your feelings about whether you wanted to know what had happened to Henry or? or about this whole process being taken out of your control, essentially?
1: Okay, so um, from the very start, I wanted to know what happened to Henry. So even if it hadn't been co-ordered, I would have wanted a post-mortem for him, and I would have wanted there to be the best chance of finding answers. Um, From, you know, throughout, and even now, I really want to know what happened to him. And I know know it's been very hard, because ultimately, we actually never did find out what happened to him. But... it's almost like I want to absorb myself of some guilt there because even though everyone has told us that it wasn't our fault and even though like logically I know it wasn't our fault not knowing those answers I'm like well could we have done something different could we have saved him almost and it it sounds like a very silly thing to say because you know know, I don't have that power to save someone if they're going to die but as his mother I feel like that was my role and I I couldn't do that, so that I really want to know answers for that reason.
0: Mm, yeah, I can. I completely understand that. There's, there's always that little part of you, isn't there, that kind of, and I think I think maybe it's just the, the part of us that's that's human, um, and thinks that you know we should be able to protect our children, we should be able to look after them. What, why has this happened? Um, and that that must still be really hard for you, given that you don't have those answers. So after, so Henry was um, went away for his post mortem, and I guess you went back home then, back back to the home with your nursery set up and all your baby things.
1: No, we didn't go home. We um, okay. we actually ended up not going home for weeks. Uh, we were sp- so he was born on the Wednesday and died on the Wednesday, and we went overnight, so it was Thursday. Um, so shortly after he went for his post mortem, we were getting ready to be discharged, and as part of discharge ops they did my temperature and um, I had a slightly raised temperature so for that reason I was kept in for another night in hospital and I um, I just got very sick uh, really unexpectedly just got very very sick Um, I clearly had an infection somewhere Um, I had a temperature that I just wasn't getting rid of I was put onto various IV antibiotics um they looked you know they checked my perineum to make sure that wasn't affected um I was sent for an ultrasound to make sure I didn't have any retained placenta um I ended up being sent for a scan of some sort I think it was a CT scan I, I don't really remember but um and I ended up spending eight days in hospital just being treated for something that they, they weren't sure what it was and at the time you know this was a big red flag for Henry as well because clearly I'd picked something up somewhere and they thought well maybe he did as well so you now I was checked. For, um, stopped for strep b and everything and um, eventually they got on top of this infection but by that point it was like the following week so we spent actually spent uh, eight days nine days in total in the bereavement suite at, at the hospital mm. uh, which was unusual
0: yeah and at least you had that space in the hospital i guess yeah to, to be, no, absolutely like yeah yeah
1: yeah, because at one point they, um, I was put onto high dependency care, and they said, you yeah, know, we can move you onto a general ward, but um, Martin wouldn't have been able to stay with me on a general ward, and they said, you yeah, know, you still have the choice to stay in this room if you want. So we opted to stay in that room and just have the care delivered in that room instead. <laughs>
0: And did they, did they ever find get to the bottom of that or did you just sort of naturally get, get better?
1: No, no, they didn't. Um, I was just given lots of different antibiotics and eventually they, they found something that, you know, worked. And I you know we never did like, get any, any answers for what caused that. So I don't know. Um, speaking to a midwife afterwards, she said, you know, the, the site inside you where the placenta comes away, you know, that is actually just a big wound, essentially. And sometimes that can cause an infection. And maybe it was that, but we actually don't know. Mm.
0: And during during that time you were, I guess, in hospital, did you find out about, I guess, more about the kind of what would happen with Henry, the legal proceedings that go on? And also, I guess you had to make decisions about funerals, you know, all these different logistical things that you have to do when you're, when your child dies. Um, we actually we didn't
1: really I think for, for a few days of that week I was just too sick to really do anything so um, we didn't really do anything during that week uh, it literally just felt like we were living minute to minute at that time and at the um, the day before I was due to be discharged we had um, someone come from the hospice the local children's hospice and they came in and spoke to us and said we have facilities at the children's hospice for you to come to us if you want and when henry's post-mortem is finished um he can come along as well and we decided i to do that i really didn't want to go home at that point um i just couldn't face the thought of going back into the home where we should have been bringing him back to so um on the friday the week after henry was born and died we actually ended up being um transferred referred into the hospice care and it was there that we made a lot of our they made all our plans for funeral and henry came back from his post-mortem and was given an intermediate death certificate um because you, you can't bury or cremate a person without a death certificate um and he the he couldn't get a death certificate until his inquest was done and inquest can typically take a year two years three years so um yeah, we, we didn't start making plans until we had him back and had that death certificate with us.
0: And I think you got to spend a bit of time with Henry at the hospice then. Could you tell us a bit about your experience of that? Because I think it's it's perhaps quite unusual compared to what a lot of parents do in terms of, I guess, how long you had, um, how long you were able to have, what sort of memories you were able to make during that time and, ha- and how you spent that time with him.
1: Yeah. So um, I honestly think going to the hospice was, The best thing that happened to us during all this and i do feel very thankful that we were given the opportunity because yeah like you say most parents just aren't giving that opportunity um so it was forget me not hospice in huddersfield that we went to and the the best thing about going there was just having some time with him because like i say we'd had less than 24 hours with him before he went away and it's um, a really nice environment. It's non-clinical. So it's just like a little flat that you have. We had a bedroom. He had a, a bedroom which you could put uh, cold blowers on so it would keep his body um, like sort of preserved, I guess. And we just had the time to just be with him and just hold him and just do some normal things with him. So... We dressed him as often as we could, and we read stories to him. We put things like old shows that we used to watch as kids on the iPad, and um, I remember we just sat and, watched and had like an old bear marathon with him one evening and watched loads of those on YouTube. And it's the sort of we were able to relax really, just really relax into being his parents because in hospital, you know with the best intentions, it's still a really clinical environment, even in the bereavement suite. You're in hospital and you have people coming in and out the whole time. There, it was just quiet. It was nice. And um, the hospice helped us a lot with the funeral arrangements as well. And, you know, nothing was too much trouble for them. If we wanted something, they they didn't their best to do it. I really wanted to take Henry outside. Uh, Martin and I spend a lot of time outside, and Henry would have spent a lot of time outside with us. So they got us a pram, and we were able to walk with him around the grounds. And that was just so important to me that Henry was able to be outside, because otherwise, his you know his whole life that he was alive outside of me was just in the hospital. And yeah, just for him to be able to feel you know the sun on his face and you know, the wind, it, that really mattered to me and the hospice allowed us to do that
0: it sounds it sounds like it's an amazing mm. amazing place to go obviously in the most horrific of yeah, circumstances no, it really but, is, yeah. but it helped make it a little bit more bearable and I think Henry um am I right in thinking Henry's buried in a woodland burial site rather than a kind of standard cemetery uh yes he is yeah how did you go about I guess, choosing whether to bury or cremate him and decide where you would lay him to rest. OK,
1: so, um, yeah, so Henry is buried in a woodland burial site in Suffolk where Martin and I both grew up. And I, I always knew that I didn't want to be cremated. Um, that's just my personal preference. And therefore, I didn't want Henry to be cremated either. So I always knew he was going to be buried. Um, the hospital, well, you know, after he died, I knew he was going to be buried. Um The hospital said they could organize a funeral for us but it would be in Bradford and we don't apart from him being born there we don't really have any connection with Bradford we don't even live in Bradford we live just over the border um so I didn't want that and uh I knew I wanted him to to be where somewhere we would always visit like we may not stay in West Yorkshire for the rest of our lives so I didn't really want him to be here because it would almost be like a, a tie to the area um, it was actually my brother who found the woodland burial site for us because, you know, it's something I'd never thought about. I'd ne- I haven't planned my own you know, funeral arrangements. didn't know where I was going to be buried, um, let alone you know, my child. So my brother went round to lots of different uh, places in our local area and he sent me photos and he said, I think this one is the nicest and that we went with that and he made a very good choice and I'm just so thankful that he did that for us.
0: Mm. And I think again it's something that never even crossed my mind until I spoke to I think someone else who lives sort of more locally in West Yorkshire and and their son is buried in a a sort of more woodland site but yeah it's it's that I mean you don't think about it do you because when you're kind of Sort of still relatively young, you don't think about you dying or your children dying or anyone. So you don't you don't think you're going to have to make these decisions at any point. So you don't you don't think about these options. But um, yeah, that was nice. And I guess sort of being in the hospice. And having that extra time gave you a little bit more time to, to think about that properly rather than being rushed into decision. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. And at the time, I remember, just, I really do, even with that extra time, I remember feeling really important that we organise his funeral for him. And looking back, I really wish we'd just waited a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know why at the time I just thought, you know, we have to get this done. This is something we can do for him. And, you know, if we get it all organised, get everything out of the way. And yeah, so his birthday is the 11th of October, and his funeral was the uh, 31st of October, Halloween. And yeah, so there's no less than three weeks. But um, but yeah, being at the hospice really helped because they uh, phoned the undertakers for us, and uh, the the funeral directors drove up from Suffolk to collect Henry for us. And um, at that time, we you know making funeral arrangements, doing everything. I like you say, you just don't you've never planned for that you know I was in my 20s I yeah didn't know what I was doing and we really needed other people to just take us by the hand and just you know say right you can do this you can do that this is what you need to do Um, we can make these phone calls Um, you know what do you want to do about this and for other people to retake charge of that because at that point we weren't in you know the fit state to do that ourselves and that is what we had from family and from the hospice was people just taking care of us and meeting our basic needs but also meeting you know these extra needs of organizing a funeral for henry
0: mm. and just i'd like to just go back a bit to this whole legal side of things um so Obviously, he'd gone to the post mortem. There was no sort of obvious cause of death, and the coroner ruled that he wanted to do an inquest. What, I guess, what happens? And the, the, the timescales for this can be very long, but I guess what happened over the coming months, year around this kind of legal process, and how did it affect you and your process of grieving?
1: Okay, so um, yeah, so inquest um, again, they are a, a legal thing. It's just to to look at the circumstances surrounding the death and to really try and work out what happened. And it's um, it's a legal proceeding, but it's not like a it's not to like um, blame anyone. It's just to really work out unpicked what happened. So um, in our case. There, nothing came up in the post-mortem so we were given the option of extra tests. Um, one thing that was suggested was a possible heart condition which can't be tested for after death and but uh, because Henry's death was like a sudden infant death it our inquest was actually quite sort of not clear cut but there wasn't loads to it um, because there was no blame anywhere so Uh, It took just over a year to come to inquest, and in that time, just statements were taken from various people, from people that cared for us. Uh, My medical record was looked into. Henry's was looked into. Um, We then we attended the inquest. um, The pathologist who performed Henry's postmortem was there, and she spoke. And you know, in the end, we ended up just getting a verdict. It was a narrative verdict, which is when the coroner says. You know, we, we don't know what's happened um, these are the circumstances but we can't actually give a cause of death so on his death certificate it's just listed as um, a sudden unexpected neonatal collapse which comes under the SIDS umbrella but I, I didn't know this but because Henry's less than 12 hours old he his death can't actually be classified as SIDS but it does okay. come under the same category of deaths an unknown infant death and um, yeah the inquest I... I found that sort of year quite hard in that it just felt like we were in like a waiting place, you know, waiting for something, waiting for answers that we actually knew we weren't going to get. But I still held on to some hope that maybe, maybe there would be something, maybe there'd be an answer. Um, and we were still waiting for these extra tests as well, genetic tests um, on us to see if we had any uh, anything we might have passed on to Henry. But sometimes these things move very very slowly and it wasn't actually until after we had Merrin, our second child that these things we actually ended up having these tests um, done that's sort of how slow things can move sometimes. Mm.
0: Yeah and in those sort of I guess those first weeks months after Henry died did you think about how I guess how you wanted to remember him how you wanted to parent him what your life would look like as a parent of a child who isn't sort of physically there in your arms, and what you wanted to do in his memory? Yeah. So, um, yeah, in those very
1: early days, I remember just feeling this really this desire, this urge that I had to do something, but I didn't know what that thing was. And it's such a strong feeling, and I suppose it's because you know you're expecting to have this baby who you have to do everything for, and then suddenly, you know, you just left with all this time on your hands. And so I was like, right, what can I do? But at the same time, I also felt really like incapacitated by grief. So some days I'd be like, right, I'm going to you know do this, do that. I'm going to you know, run up mountains for him. And other days I just thought I can't even get out of bed today. Like, you know, if I get dressed, that's an achievement today. Um, so I decided early on I would do what I could for him. I would live my life the very best I could for him. I'd live a good enough life for both of us. and um that's continued sort of now, I, day to day. I just try and make sure that I am, this is going to sound really like cheesy, but just a better person for him. And um, about a month after he died, I started writing. And it's something I've done almost every single day, um, just writing about him, about how I feel, my grief. And I started writing publicly on Instagram, um, not frequently, but just if I really felt like moved to do so, I'll just write something down. And then I started my blog as well for the same reason. And just to share those feelings because I realized very quickly that we do not live in a world that understands grief, especially when your child has died and people are, incredibly uncomfortable with it and i understand why it's a really uncomfortable subject but i realized i'd have to be the one to sort of take the lead on talking about him and talking about grief and almost educating people about what it's like to be you know a bereaved parent um so as we know as time went on and we started feeling a little bit more able to do things we uh we did a little bit of fundraising um I About six months after Henry was born, I swam the distance of the channel in my local pool. Um, It was over a few weeks. um, And that was like the first bit of fundraising we did for him. Um, And then since then, we've done a few other little bits of fundraising for him. And those things feel important as just something, you know, to say his name, to get people thinking about him. And it's something we can do for him still. Day to day, we... We just talk about him. We look for opportunities to share him. Um, I never, ever shy away from talking about him. And I'm aware it does make some people uncomfortable, but I have to do it. He's my child. So, you know, I'm I, I'm not going to apologise for you know, mentioning him still. And yeah, that, that's what we do. We just make sure he's always include in things we do so when we go on holiday we write his name on the beach we send postcards back home to him Uh, when i sign christmas cards i either sign his name or i put you know a little star with a h in just so he's still included
0: and one thing i noticed on your blog was that you decided to donate your wedding dress to a charity in henry's memory could you tell us a bit more about that
1: yeah so um this, like I say, I, I look for any opportunity I can to to do something for Henry, and this was one thing that came up. Um, there's a, there was a, there is a charity called um, Cherished Gowns who make funeral gowns for babies of all all sizes, all born, all gestations, and born after birth. And this wasn't something we needed for Henry because Henry was a full term baby, so we had plenty of clothes that fit him when he came back from his post-mortem someone had dressed him in a little cardigan a little hat and little booties like knitted and they were actually they were far too small for him like someone had properly squeezed him in there so i remember like now like after taking them off him and like holding them up and being like i don't know how they managed to get him in there but they did um but i was really touched at the time that you know he'd gone away from this postmortem and he'd been away from me and it's it's not a nice thought thinking about your child going to post-mortem but seeing that someone had dressed him in those little clothes I thought oh someone cared enough to actually do that for him and that that was really like important to me that you know he had been taken care of so i found this charity cherished G- Cherish gowns um and uh, donated my wedding dress to them and it got turned into funeral gowns for other babies who die um, before or after um, their birth. And yeah, it's just something I can do for him in his name, in his memory. And, you know, nothing in the world is ever going to make the death of your child any better. But maybe for some parents, just being able to, you know, have a little item of clothing they can dress their baby in, especially if their baby is small and you, know, you can't buy clothes for them, maybe it'll just make that process just that tiny bit easier for them.
0: Mm, I think that's really lovely and also because your wedding dress is one of those things that you're never quite sure what to do with it after <laughs> the day do you and then, you know, some people feel very strongly that they want to hold on to it other people you know um either kind of sell it on as a pre or or you know um or do something else with it but I think that's a really that's a really lovely way of giving part of you and Martin and your kind of special day in your wedding day um to someone else in memory
1: yeah so I actually remember thinking with the wedding dress um I held on to it uh, for how many years it was four years at that point um thinking oh if I ever have a daughter, maybe she could wear it, you know if she wants to it might be terribly out of date by then um but then when in donating it for Henry, I thought well he's not my daughter, but it's it's for him um and you know if my daughter can't wear it you know, I don't know if I'll ever have a daughter this is the you no know, this is just as good um Mm. He, you know, he's not going to wear it. Another child will wear it instead.
0: Yeah. Um, and you do have a second child. So you do have a daughter, Merrin. And I can imagine that pregnancy after loss is always really difficult when when you've lost a child. And ev- difficult even after your, you know, your rainbow baby is born alive and healthy. But I imagine that for you, your feelings around Merrin's, well, the pregnancy, the birth and the days following that must have been really complex um could you talk a bit about the impact of Henry's death on your pregnancy with Marin, her birth and, and perhaps the early weeks of her life yeah sure
1: so um it was I mean for one thing it was really difficult deciding to have another baby after Henry died um for one thing I was like I don't want another baby I I want him um another baby isn't going to make this any better but um also I was like but I need to do something, you know, I have literally have empty arms. I need to fill these arms. So, yeah, we decided to, um, I think it was seven months after Henry died, we got pregnant with Merrin, And um, it yeah was very, obviously very difficult. Uh, we had a, so much support during that time from the hospital. We had lots of extra scans and um, a referral to the Tommy's Rainbow Clinic, even though we don't fall into their sort of usual, um, criteria uh they were happy to see us um i think because henry died after birth and because his pregnancy had been you know okay i was i was obviously concerned i wasn't as concerned as other parents who whose babies die before birth may have been it was the time around birth and after birth that i was most worried about um, Maren's birth was completely different to Henry's and they say they're all different. Uh, we decided to go in for an induction at 40 weeks um, because I, there is a slight increase at risk of stillbirth after 40 weeks and I just didn't want to take any extra risks that we didn't need to. Um, her birth wasn't as... It was okay. It it just wasn't as easy as Henry's birth and I think in part because of my anxiety um, and then she came out and she was just a completely different child. You know, she looked different. Uh, Henry had been born very calm and alert. She was very shouty, red um, in the face. And yeah, from the very start, it's like, okay, this is a completely different child. Um, she had a um, an ECG hours after birth and that threw up some potential heart problems, which is what we'd been worried about. You know, is this what killed Henry? So she was actually admitted to NICU immediately after birth um well a few hours after birth and actually for me i was like okay this is what actually what i want if we can monitor her and make sure she's okay that's good you know if we'd had this for henry maybe we would have found something and he'd be here um, as it turned out actually there was nothing up some babies' hearts after they're born do just look a little bit odd but that's settled down um and Once we worked through all that, then it was just parenting her. And it has been incredibly difficult not knowing why Henry died and the fact he just stopped breathing or had a heart attack or whatever happened to him means that I never stopped worrying about the same thing happening to Mm Merrin. And I hear a lot of parents say this, you know, uh, a lot of non-bereaved parents, if their baby sleeps for a little bit longer or they sleep through the night, you know, saying, oh, you know, I was worried they'd died. And for me, that isn't just a worry. It, it's like a reality. Until I know for sure that she's still alive, to me, she has died. Um, until that moment where I can poke her and she starts to you know, wriggle around in my mind, she's dead. And there have been so many times you know, during her short life when I have just had to wake her up and be like, I'll just have to check that you're still breathing. And yeah, just that anxiety is uh, immense, really. Um, a lot of parents say you know they, they want to get through the birth and once they've got them here in their arms you know they'll, they'll feel okay but for me that was the moment I was most worried about was having her here in my arms.
0: Yeah that was the starting point of it and have, have you found it's got any easier over 15 months or is it is that still really hard for you? Yeah so
1: it has got easier for sure um, once we you know the, the risk of SIDS is greater through, during the first four months anyway so um, once we were past four months, past six months, as she started getting a bit bigger, a bit more robust, yeah, I, my anxieties do start, had, did start to ease. But I don't think it's something I'll ever stop worrying about. Um, so Meren wore an apnea monitor for the first six months of her life, which was provided by the Lullaby Trust under a scheme they run for um, parents whose babies have died of SIDS. And after six months, uh, we gave that back to the the hospital and then I think we had one night without it and I was just like I can't do this um you know I need to know that she's breathing so then we put got her an under mattress monitor which she still sleeps with now and I honestly feel like if I could keep her on that monitor you know until she leaves home at like 18 19 I would because yeah you just I'm never going to stop worrying about the you no know, worrying that she's just stopped breathing like Henry did um but that's something that I I have to work through myself because, you know, she you know she's going to grow up and yeah I can't and just keep her going and as well, her. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: I think you also donated some of your breast milk for a while um, why did you decide to do this how how did you find out about it or or go about doing that
1: okay yeah so um I, yeah after Marin was born I donated breast milk but uh, I actually donated the reason I donated it was because of henry after henry died uh, my milk started to come in you know because your body doesn't know what's happened and uh, i was given a tablet to suppress the milk and out, out of everything that happened around the whole experience of those you know the day he died the day after that really stands out in my mind as being just a, a truly horrific moment um just being given it just taking it and just being like okay my body's going to stop making the milk that it's making to feed him, to grow him. And I'd been really looking forward to breastfeeding throughout his pregnancy. And it's something I couldn't wait to do with him. And I didn't know about breast milk donation at the time. I don't even know if it would have been appropriate for us because not knowing how he died, um, whether they would have accepted my milk at all. Uh, but nobody mentioned it. And uh, I. it was only later through the baby loss community I found out about the milk donation. And sort of thought, oh, I, I wish I could have done this, f- you know, for him, uh, for other babies. So after Merrin was born, um, we had a difficulty establishing breastfeeding in the first place, and had to work quite hard to get that going. And when we eventually did, uh, she was about two months old. We, um, I've just remembered about the milk donation, and I contacted our local milk bank and started donating and it, it feels like something I can do for Henry as well. Um, like I said, I always look for opportunities to do things for him to make the world a little bit of a better place, and milk banks always need milk. They, the milk's used to feed uh, premature sick babies in the neonatal units, and I, while I was you know, pumping uh, you know, I think well, I'm doing this for Henry. If he couldn't be saved, maybe the milk that other babies receive will just be a very small part in helping them get healthy enough to, to also survive and to be able to go home with their parents or have a little bit longer with their parents. So, yeah, the the breast milk I donated was, you know, my body made it for Merrin, but it was donated thinking about Henry and for him, really.
0: I think that leads me on really nicely, actually, to my sort of final question, which is around balancing parenting one child who is alive with you, places constant demands on your time and is is very physically there in your life. And balancing that with parenting Henry, who is just as big a part of your life, but isn't there and doesn't place those more physical demands on you, I guess. How how do you approach that and how do you go about that?
1: Mm, so, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's it's qu- quite hard to answer as well because, yeah, the first you know, months, even the first year of a living baby's life are, are very intense, are very demanding. And at times I do feel like, you know, because Meryn's needs are so immediate and Henry's aren't, that actually Marin does get a lot more attention than him. And, you know physically she does so yeah that's something actually I I do struggle with sort of feeling like I don't really balance um parenting them very well but that's not to say that I don't I don't know it's not I don't love him enough to do that it's just that she's here and he's not sort of in my the way I think about them equally um this is something that I Think non-bereaved people don't probably don't really get is that he is in my thoughts just as much as Marin is. Um As a family, we speak about him every single day. We just you know speculate about what he'd be doing right now. Um, his photos are up. We have a lot of his things around the house. Uh, Marin has some of his toys, so you know we get to say his name a lot. And now that Marin is getting a little bit bigger, a little less demanding. Um, he, we, you know we start to think about other things we can do for him uh you know i do still write to, about him every day or write to him every day and yeah but no that is is really it is challenging trying to uh, balance the two because they are just two completely different ways of parenting and the way you parent your missing child is just it's nothing like how you parent your living child. And it does take, it requires time, you know, to do these things for him. And if you're gonna do some fundraising, you need the time to like train or to organize it. Um, if you're gonna make something in their memory, you just need that time to sit down and do it. And uh, even like writing my blog, you know, I need that time to sit down and do it. And actually with another child, you don't have it. Uh, with a living child, you don't always have that time. I figure that if Henry was here, You know, he would have gone from having all my attention and to having to share. And that's what he's having to do now. He's having to share me with Meryn. So, yeah, the way I sort of kind of get over that guilt a little bit of not being able to do everything I could do for him is by remembering that it would have changed anyway, even if he was here. And as Meryn gets older and a bit more independent, then, yeah, I can refine that balance, I suppose.
0: Hmm. I think that's a wonderful place on which to finish. Thank you so much for sharing Henry's story with us. Could you just tell people where they can connect with you online or find out more about Henry's story?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So um, I do have a blog, uh, not one I've written in for a little while because of Maren, but I hope to get back to it. Uh, That's heyworlditshenry.com. And I also, I write a little bit more frequently on Instagram and my Instagram handle is underscore a b c d e f george which is g e o r g
0: fantastic i'll include all those links in the show notes thanks so much for coming on podcast georgia it's been wonderful chatting to you thank
1: you thank you for having me it's lovely to talk about henry and give him a little bit of space
0: thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on itunes you can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.